Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to go back to a topic very near and dear to our hearts. And we've talked about it in previous episodes that we will link in our show notes to. Uh, we're going to talk about SESTA and FOSTA, the laws that were passed through Congress last year uh, to stop sex trafficking. Um, it was targeted at different internet companies to kind of help law enforcement go through that. However, that law, as we have warned, was going to have a lot of unintended crucial um, negative consequences on different groups of people. To, joining us is clinical instructor and lecturer on law at Harvard Law School, Kendra Albert. Hello, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming, Kendra. Tell us, what is SESTA-FOSTA? Um, so SESTA and FOSTA were two bills that were uh, before Congress uh, last year. And they uh, were meant to amend Section 230. And for folks who are unfamiliar, Section 230 is like the bedrock of online speech law. Um, and what it does is it, as y'all have probably talked about on the podcast before, is it protects uh, platforms or basically anyone who hosts other people's content online from being held liable as the publisher of something for someone someone else, something someone else says, held liable as the publisher for something someone else says. So what that means in practice is, for example, if you if you're Yelp and someone writes a review of a carpet cleaner that happens to be defamatory and says all kinds of things about their carpet cleaning that are just untrue, that harm their reputation, meets all the characteristics of defamatory speech. Under pre-CDA 230 law, you could potentially be held liable for the uh, for the that those defamatory statements about the carpet cleaner. But CDA 230 makes it so the Yelp can't be held liable for the but for the things that uh, third parties say. So where all this comes in with SESTA-FOSTA is that there's been a longtime movement um, to sort of think about amending Section 230 to exclude particular categories of behavior or sort of content, speech content or other types of content that um, people think are especially objectionable or our people are especially concerned about. And in section in FOSTA-SESTA, the two categories of uh, things that people wanted to exclude from 230 protection were um, material related to sex trafficking and solicitation of prostitution or sex work, um, as I usually call it. All right. And um, just before we dive into what happened after the law passed, I wanted to note from my DC perspective, someone who was kind of in the middle of uh, the passage and commenting on the law as it went further along in the process, this bill had a big bipartisan support. Only two senators, I believive, did not vote for it. And Senator McCain, may he rest in peace, I think was already um, ill at that point, so we don't know how he would have voted. Uh, Obviously, all the members of Congress want to protect victims of sex trafficking, and this was a very emotional issue. There were victims and their families testifying, telling their stories, uh, horrifying details. It was heartbreaking. Uh, what we were worried about was that hitting the websites, especially the websites who were not even participating or had any knowledge of um, of these awful activities, it would hurt the victims the most. You know, there's obviously a scale of economic negative effects that were going to be on the companies, but who cares if the victims are hurt? So that was our concern too. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting, um, sort of as in the lead up to the bill, a lot of this was about a website called Backpage. Um, And so Backpage was a classified ad service that particularly provided like erotic services ads. um, And there was sex trafficking going on on Backpage. I don't think that's like not really in doubt. And no one, you know, Senate did an investigation and in their report, they had the evidence that yes, Backpage 
page knew that they had operators who would tell uh, people who would call how to structure the ads and things like that. So obviously they had full knowledge. They were assisting traffickers. They were guilty. Yeah. And they weren't, in fact, actually, after that information came out, they weren't protected by Section 230. They were brought up on federal criminal charges. And that was before FOSTA was even signed into law. So like lots of folks often attribute the takedown of Backpage to SESTA FOSTA. And I do think that there's obviously a correlation in the sense that the will, the political will that brought us FOSTA also helped bring down Backpage. But one of the important parts is that FOSTA wasn't actually required to bring down Backpage. But you asked about consequences. So let's talk a little bit about sort of what happened after. So I think that independent of your stance on uh, sex trafficking or sex work or how you think the 230 immunity should be crafted, I think it's pretty fair to say that FOSTA is not a well-written law, right? It's just incredibly confusing. I see this as someone who's read it a lot um, in terms of trying to figure out what's covered, what's not covered, exactly how the limits on immunity work, of how the affirmative defenses work. And it also sets up a new criminal provision um, called 242-1A, which is meant to apply to the sort of promotion of sex trafficking or sex work by online platforms. Part of the reason this happened was not only the drafting problems, but also that SASTA and FOSTA were two separate bills. Mm -hmm. And FOSTA was what we call updated. It was FOSTA 2.0 with the help of House Judiciary Committee. And uh, they, it was, by the way, the Republicans were in majority back then. And they put in a kind of a criminal liability while not really touching Section 230. It was supposed to be the compromise. And uh, the party leadership on the House side was like, you know what, what if if like half of the people support SESTA Why and not both? Fosta, just put them together? It, it feels like a good solution. So they kind of mashed it all together. And even though the offers of Section 230, uh, Democrat uh, Ron Wyden and Republican Chris Cox, who is no longer in government, both have uh, opposed it and said it's not the way out. Um, no one listened. Yeah. So, you know, that you see that like very clearly in the in the bill, in the law that was passed in that sort of like divide between like the two different approaches to dealing with uh, sex work and sex trafficking. The consequences of the bill passing were pretty swift. Um, So after it was signed into law, Craigslist almost immediately shut down all their personal ads. So they had already Craigslist had already eliminated sort of its more specific erotic services stuff. So like that was where people would advertise things like, um, you know, dominatrixes or nude house cleaning, which turns out to be a thing. Who knew? Um, Craigslist, apparently. Um, But uh in the aftermath of FOSTA, they shut down literally like all their personals. So if you ever enjoyed misconnections on Craigslist, I have some bad news for you. It's gone. Um, it's a it's a, a yet another um, casualty of FOSTA. But more broadly, you know, that was sort of like the kind of very visible stuff right. that Parts happened. Parts of Reddit shut down. Tumblr stopped having... Um, I would say nude content on it. Yeah. There were a lot of things that kind of were happening. Yeah, although I'll be totally honest, I'm not entirely sure that Tumblr's like decision around not safe for work stuff had a ton to do with FOSTA, um, just because it doesn't feel like, you know, even have given the, the law is very vague, but even with how vague the law is, it doesn't map on super well to what Tumblr was talking about. But, you know, yeah, there were, I think lots of platforms took a good hard look at like how they were handling not safe for work content, content related to sex or that's explicit generally. The other thing that happened in the aftermath is folks who sort of uh, do sex worker modeling online reported that even like websites that weren't sort of catering to like or containing explicit stuff started getting cracking down way more on their material. So, for example, Instagram um, 
has banned lots and lots of folks who do sex work or who engage in sort of modeling or um, uh, kink, like selling kink stuff online. So there, there's there been sort of this, uh, com- the sex work community folks, uh, a lot of community folks within the sex work community have spoken about how this law has not just affected them in that like it's hard, much harder for them to um, make a living anymore because they're not able to sort of put up ads and solicit for clients, but also like it can just be hard for them to go about their day-to-day lives because like they can't maintain a uh, PayPal account because they at one point might have sold explicit materials. So that's been a real challenge with the law is, and this actually resulted sort of as many folks who are against the law and paying attention to sex workers predicted um, in sort of actually widespread increases in um uh, what one might call human trafficking, or at least people going back to uh, sex workers who were previously working independently because they could advertise online and sort of find their own clients and screen their own clients, um, going back to uh, pimps or other people who were sort of more abusive. So there's been some research to suggest that the number of deaths of sex workers, So, and when I say sex workers, I mean people who are engaged in consensual sex work, not folks who are under 18 and not folks who are sort of forced into it. Um, has increased quite significantly post-FOSTA just because it turns out advertising online is a lot safer than like uh, street prostitution, which for many people is the alternative if sex work is a survival strategy for you. And we have warned about this and there are two things I want to mention. So one of the things that we were talking about back in the day was that all of this will go into kind of a dark, will be pushed into the shadows. So if we are talking about human trafficking, Um, when that was done through websites, a lot of websites would cooperate with law enforcement and help them would cooperate with a lot of um, NGOs and other initiatives, for example, uh, Thorn that Ashton Kutcher runs and would help them find the perpetrators because obviously they didn't want any of that on their platform and they were in good faith. With passage of Sestin Fosta, they're afraid that they would be accused of having knowledge of those activities and that would make them liable. So they just kind of, you know, they stop, they like, put their hands up in there and they're like, we don't know. We don't know what's happening. We don't see it. You just figure it out. And a lot of things were pushed to the dark net. So that makes it harder for law enforcement to investigate. And I have to say, and we've done some episodes in this and we've written about this, law enforcement in general, especially in state level, uh, doesn't have a technological capacity to uh, investigate in general. So pushing things to the dark net, a lot of people don't even know what darknet is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, um, as you mentioned, that sex workers had to go offline. Uh, and it's not even them offering their services online. Uh, it's also the fact that they were organizing and uh, sharing tips and um, kind of making sure everyone was safe, keeping an eye on each other, you know, sex workers of one city on another city, things like that. So it was definitely a community that was very supportive and was trying to keep everyone safe as much as they could. And um, they're also also pushed into the shadows. And uh, that is creating this awful, unsafe environment. And we already see numbers, you know, heartbreaking numbers, too, of people dying and disappearing, going up. What do you think this conversation will lead to? Do you think there will anything that would be done to well, correct the course? <laughs> I hope so. Well, so the, actually the point about sort of, they're often called bad John lists, like lists of uh, sort of uh, clients that you don't want to work with if you're a sex worker um, is actually a really good one because it segues quite nicely into the ongoing litigation that's currently happening regarding FOSTA. Um, so after FOSTA was passed and signed into law, um, the EFF and a bunch of other folks... And EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yes, Electronic Frontier Foundation 
Foundation and a bunch of other very smart lawyers um, got together and sued the government on behalf of the Internet Archive, Human Rights Watch, um, uh, the founder of Rate That Rescue, which was an organization that helped sex workers keep safe and provided like tips and material on how to like of like vet clients um, and Woodhull Sexual Freedom Found- Woodhull Sexual Freedom Foundation, which is an or- a sex positive organization, and I think there's one more. There's an individual massage therapist whose name is currently escaping me. Um, and so they filed litigation challenging the the law as unconstitutional, and that was in D.C. And so that sort of there was briefing in that, and then the court in D.C. found that um, throughout the lawsuit they dismissed it, finding that the plaintiffs actually um, the Human Rights Watch, Internet Archive, Rate That Rescue, etc. didn't have standing, and so basically they didn't have what a credible threat of prosecution under the law, and so they were, therefore weren't able to litigate. I guess the question is, so for our listeners to know what standing is, standing is the right to sue, and not everyone has a right to sue everyone, which is a reason why our legal system partially works. Um, but at the same time, that means that people who can sue are what? Sex traffickers themselves? Yeah, it was really unclear you know, I think reading the district court opinion, like what the district court thought would like literally give someone standing. Granted, it's a pre-enforcement challenge. So none of these parties are saying, hey, you know, someone has sued us under FOSTA or brought criminal charges under 242-1A. So like, I think it's pretty clear that if someone actually sued you or if the federal government actually brought criminal charges, you definitely have standing. But I, I think that the um, the plaintiffs did have the right of it in terms of they should have, they do have standing. And so they they appealed up to the DC Circuit Court, um, which is where it is now. So that briefing, I think the reply briefs um, in that case just got filed a couple days ago. So that we're sort of waiting for the DC Circuit to <laughs> tell us if the plaintiffs have standing, in which case it'll go back down to the district court to be tried to be tried and sort of to get further along in your professional opinion what are the chances of appeal being granted well i i i would like to think that uh the appeal will be granted and it'll go back down to the district court because i i do think that the um uh the organizations have suggested that there is a credible threat of prosecution and that more broadly that there is like significant speech that's being chilled I think what's tricky about it is um, it's sort of this weird dynamic that often happens in First Amendment litigation where, ironically, the very people who are subject, who are worried about the law, have to argue it's super broad and the government argues it's super narrow. So when you read the briefing, um, especially in the in D.C., the government's arguing for an actually relatively narrow interpretation of the language of FOSTA, which is pretty surprising because when you actually read the language of FOSTA, it's, it's susceptible to be inter- being interpreted quite broadly. And it's based on a lot, a lot of parts of it are modeled on the Travel Act, which is the federal anti-prostitution statute, which is also really, really, really broad. So... The plaintiffs in the in um, the D.C. Circuit Court and in D.C. District Court are sort of arguing that a lot of the behavior that they want to engage in. So, for example, like Woodhull putting on a conference where they talk about like how to do sex work more safely, how to decriminalize stuff, um, sharing tips, so on and so forth, um, isn't. It, the plaintiffs are having to argue that it would be criminalized or would be suppressed under FOSTA, and the government is arguing that it isn't. So in the one on the one hand, it's a little weird to have the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Human Rights Watch arguing like, yeah, this law sh- is totally covers the stuff that uh, these folks are doing. On the other hand, one good thing it does mean is that the government has had to put into briefing what it thinks the so they are on record now. the the like language of the statute covers, and they've suggested, and I, I don't think this is necessarily the best reading of the language, sort of from a textualist standpoint, but they've suggested that they think that it primarily is aimed at 
like advertising, basically sort of like ads for or direct solicitation of sex work or sex trafficking. Um, That's not exactly what the statute says, but if the government actually wanted to only interpret it that way, I think that would be a much better uh, version of the law than the one that is sort of actually on the books. The question I had in mind was in that county in Nevada where prostitution is legalized, would them running ads be legal or illegal? So it's an affirmative defense under the statute uh, that pro- that sex work is legal in the jurisdiction you're targeting. So then you actually have a whole bunch of really interesting questions uh, about like, what does it mean to target a particular jurisdiction? Is it is it like you're serving ads f- to people in that jurisdiction? It's a, is it like the equivalent of like the Craigslist Boston or Craigslist DC? Or is it like your servers are there? The answer is we don't know. One other interesting thing right now is that lots of sex work advocates, um, there's like really large movements to push towards decriminalization, which is not the legalization model that's what's present in Nevada, but decriminalization is just saying, just don't make it illegal to do sex work. Um, Take the laws off the books that criminalize sex work and stop prosecuting people. For our listeners who are not lawyers, what is the difference between making something legal and decriminalizing it? Yeah, so making something legal, as people may or may not know, uh, prostitution in Nevada is pretty heavily regulated, right? There's like specific brothels and there's a lot of rules about how you have to engage in that form of sex work in Nevada. Um, le- that's legalization. So there's a whole bunch of rules about how to do things. So for example, if we think about like alcohol sales, right? Alcohol is legal and there's all sorts of rules in every every jurisdiction about how exactly you can sell alcohol and to whom uh-huh. you can sell it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, decriminalization is in some ways the opposite of that, which is to say you just get rid of all of the laws that make sex work illegal, but you don't start regulating the process, right? You don't say, oh, you need to have this STI test and you can only administer, you can only do sex work in these scenarios. You just get rid of the laws that make it illegal. And many sex worker advocates um, and sex workers themselves argue that this is the best model for uh, dealing with sex work because sex workers are often targeted by the police. And so the fact that sex work is criminalized or even legalized, right, if there's specific rules that govern it, those can still be, even if it's legalized, those can still be used by police in order to um, uh, prosecute people or sort of harass sex workers. And, you know, you see a lot of that, you know, in street sex work, for example, there's been multiple cases where being found with condoms has been uh, evidence that was admitted and at trial to show that someone was a sex worker. So someone in, let's say, a nice dress and we'll know how, you know, open our society is and a little bit more progressive and women dress however they want. And, you know, um, there are a lot of people who dress and identify however they want. And they, let's say you're just walking something super sparkly and super short down the street and you have condoms in your pocket. Yeah. So the, yeah. So that can potentially, be used as evidence. Yeah, it can be used as evidence that you are going to engage in sex work. And the reason that's even more screwed up is because it creates exactly the wrong set of incentives. Because actually, if you are, care about like public health, you want sex workers who want to use condoms. condoms to be able to have condoms. So in any case, sex, the sex work legalization, regulation, decriminalization is a whole nother topic. But one interesting thing about it as it relates to FOSTA is that it's possible that decriminalizing sex work actually could create a sort of helpful law under FOSTA because of the affirmative defense for sex work being legal. So if sex work is legal in a jurisdiction, then there are affirmative defenses under FOSTA. On the other hand, that doesn't really help the large internet platforms that are often the ones who are that sex workers want to use because it's where people are um, and who are often regulating sex worker speech. So although there are some sort of like promising leads around decrim 
decriminalization activism that sex workers are already engaged in, it, that's a long way off from solving the FOSTA, FOSTA problems. Are you engaged in any work around this issue? Yeah. So I've had the the privilege and the pleasure to work with like a number of sex workers on the issue and sort of hearing their perspectives and sort of getting to uh, learn more about sort of where they're coming from and what would be most useful to them. And um, including Daniel Blunt, who's a fantastic sex work activist from New York. And um, one of the things we're working on right now is actually a sort of long form legal explainer around FOSTA, partially because what we realized was, although there's been there was lots of advocacy work happening around when SESTA and FOSTA was passed, and there has been some more recent law uh, legal work around sort of like consequences and potential challenges, it's actually really difficult to figure out what the law does um, by reading the text. Um, or sort of what potential uh, what potential strategies are most effective. Um, and so I've been working with the gender justice uh, clinic at Cornell Law School um, to produce a long form explainer that's going to help sort of folks, especially starting with lawyers, but also non-lawyers navigate those questions. And the other thing is that I advise, in, advise individual clients with regard to FOSTA compliance. So I help like small organizations, individuals who are doing work um, in the public interest um, figure out how like great, this law's on the books, you kind of still have to comply with it, um, how exactly that should work. We're very lucky to have you because you obviously have such an extent uh, of expertise in many, many aspects of the uh, legal field and obviously this topic. Uh, to wrap up, I uh, just wanted for our listeners to ask you, how did you end up in tech policy? What was your pathway to Harvard Law and teaching at Harvard Law and working with Cornell Law Clinics and all this, you know, amazing Shiny opportunities. Um, well, it's, it's it's really funny, actually. I mean, I never, you know, uh, I never really intended to be a technology lawyer. My undergraduate degree is in uh, drama and history. Um, I was actually a lighting designer for technical theater when I was in college. And I got really interested when I was in college about how law interacted with science. So I started learning about sort of like how law handles epidemiological evidence that is admitted in court. Um, and this was like sort of my first encounter with the kind of translation work that like tech lawyers do and lawyers who have want to introduce uh, science in court have to do with figuring out how to explain to a jury or to a judge or to people generally like incredibly technical topics in ways that are like not boring or um, so that work sort of led me to the Berkman Klein Center for Internet Society, where I worked for two years before I went to law school. And then um, I sort of got hooked on not far from the center. Yeah, no, I mean, like. Uh, a whole, a whole, it's, it's across a whole street from the rest of the law school. Um, yeah. So, so not very far. Um, so then I, you know, yeah, I just like got really, I found that one of the things I really enjoyed was like being able to take technical topics and make them more understandable. And that's true both for like, oh, like cryptography, right? Like helping lawyers or sort of, um, uh, other people, uh, sort of like lay people, um, there were air quotes there, which don't always translate the best on podcasting, but lay people in air quotes, uh, understand cryptography, but that's also true of helping technical, more technical people understand law. So part of it is learning to translate that kind of work. Um, medium so, in between. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so I went to law school and I knew I wanted to do tech policy stuff and I got particularly excited about like sort of computer security. Um, and so I worked for a year after law school at an, a law firm called Zeitgeist with uh, Marsha Hoffman, who is a former attorney at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and sort of like really got to like learn a lot very quickly um, about how to advise hackers. Um, so part of my practice is doing things around sex work advocacy and sort of like more general intellectual 
intellectual property or First Amendment stuff. But like part of what I do on my day to day basis is when I'm working with students is actually have them help advise people on sort of. Uh, computer security issues like uh, security vulnerabilities and reporting. Um, actually, we have a client who I really enjoy working with called Voting Village, who are a bunch of voting machine hackers, and they're always coming up with fun thing, fun problems to solve. And my guess is they're trying to find vulnerabilities so people don't hack into a machine. Exactly. Right? Yes. Uh, Just for the record. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 So they're they're uh, they find vulnerabilities in voting machines in order to help secure America's election infrastructure. So That's super amazing cool. work. So I, I just feel really lucky that I get to do really cool work for really cool clients and that, you know, I get to work on issues like like FOSTA, where there's a, a really important group that's really been significantly impacted by the leg, by the legislation who isn't, you know, necessarily the ones with like a lot of representation in D.C. And that is sex workers. So that's or a like, lot of, you know, understanding of their lives and yeah. just sympathy, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. So I think that that's been, it's been really, I've been really grateful on FOSTA to be like taught and to be learned from a lot of fantastic advocates who've really spoken about why this matters to them and how this turns, changes their lives. And then using that knowledge to better understand what's happening in the court case and also how to advise clients. And for our listeners who are considering law school or are in law school, you have to understand that clinical professors and uh, people who go to clinics are doing God's work. That's <laughs> something that you will learn and you will understand. And it's one of the most valuable things you can bring out of law school uh, because that's real life experience. That's understanding. That's thinking like a lawyer and not just in a classroom setting or in an exam setting. It's actually, you know, digging in, working with clients, figuring out who you are in your DNA as a lawyer, because obviously there are different people in different styles. So thank you so much for uh-huh. that. That's such so kind. I feel like, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I would say for law students who are listening, like doing a clinic is, you know, not just, it doesn't have to be my clinic. Uh, but, uh, doing a clinic is a fantastic experience because like, it's one thing to look at something like FOSTA and say, Hey, this law is really confusing. Like, uh, wish they drafted it better. But when you have to actually advise a client on what they should do with the law, um, it's when you really get to start to understand it and really get to dig into the details. And I would say that, uh, I've done clinics both in my undergrad law degree and when I was doing my law degree here in the United States. And, you know, I've done human rights. I've done uh, here. I was doing domestic domestic. I was doing domestic violence filings, trying to get restraining orders and things like that. Speaking of God's work. (laughs) And it's not physically and mentally easy. Um, And it's not something that, you know, like obviously now I work in free speech and surveillance reform and things like that. So it's not something you don't have to go to a clinic, but you're like, I want to do landlord tenant litigation my whole the rest of my legal career. It's something that you should feel passionate about or at least interested in, that you should try. And um, even if you don't end up in that field, it will give you an understanding, um, big, you know, a big understanding and also respect for people who actually do it and go to work every day and then go home every day and try to forget. (laughs) Yeah. And try to forget and not think about it. Um, so yeah, I hope this, this was a good like little plug for law school education. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, um, I feel lucky to get to do clinical work and I think that, you know, it, uh, one of the, I think one of the important things about tech policy or about 
uh, law school or anything like sort of in that space is that there you learn skills that translate even if the subject matter is not the same as the one you eventually end up working on. So this the skills I use in you know does I used in technical theater are actually the same skills I use now. Um, they don't you know I I focus fewer lights now generally speaking, um, but you know it's collaboration translation you know uh, organization like all of that stuff is super relevant and that's true you know pretty much working on any policy issue or working in any clinic. Oh yeah, absolutely. We're going to link to the work that you've mentioned and to your profile that has, I'm sure, the things that you've written and to some of the exciting courses you're teaching in Harvard Law School. In our show notes, please follow Kendra on Twitter. That will be also a link in the show notes. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. You can follow Tech Freedom on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Freedom. Please leave us a review. No one has left us a review in two years, so I don't know how I'm doing. Last time you left us a Last time you left us a review, Evan was still the host. So am I doing so great you have no feedback, guys? Come on. Give me some tough love. (laughs) You asked for it. (laughs) I'm asking for it. Hey, comment on my accent. Do you understand the words I'm saying? Tell me if you want different topics. Come on, just engage with me. Well, and thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.